0: Welcome to Schools on the Front Lines, a new podcast brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. This special podcast series has focused on the multiple challenges that our schools faced as they shut down last March, and now here in August as they reopen with an improved approach to distance learning as the new normal. These new challenges also present schools with new opportunities to get things right. In this, our eighth episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Cristina De Jesus, president and CEO of Green Dot Public Schools, California. She leads a charter network of 22 middle and high schools serving 11,500 students in the urban core of Los Angeles. Welcome, Christina.
1: Thanks, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: How would you describe the current demographics of Green Dot students and their families?
1: We serve 94% socioeconomically disadvantaged student population, 14% students with disabilities, 17% English learners, and 98% students of color. So, really focusing purposely on communities that have been systemically excluded from high quality options. We have 19 middle and high schools, and we started at high school because that's where the need was. Many charter organizations started in elementary. We started at high school, one, because 20 years ago, not many folks were focused on on high schools in the way we needed to be. It was around the time that the phrase dropout factories was coined. And so, you know, we intentionally focused on one of the hardest areas, which was high school. Our mission has always been to help transform public education. So all students graduate prepared for college leadership and life. And then lastly, we really try to focus on supports for teachers and educators, treating teachers like professionals. And we like to say our goal is to ensure our teachers feel successful, appreciated and empowered. And so every day we work to make sure those three things are true.
0: Tell us about your early life and career before Green Dot.
1: I was the oldest of four children. I grew up in a mixed race home. My father was born and raised in the Philippines and his whole life dreamed of coming to the United States. And my mother is of Irish descent and they instinctively knew for, for me and for my four siblings that the education we would receive in the schools in our neighborhood were not what they hoped for. Um, they knew how to navigate the system and well before charters existed, they got what was called an interdistrict transfer that allowed us to go to schools in a wealthy neighborhood in San Diego. That choice to find us a better school option completely changed the trajectory of my life. And it changed the way I dreamed about what was possible, gave me access to an environment where everyone was expected to do and be their best every day, no excuses, and gave me access to a peer group who lived in a world I wasn't familiar with, a world of resource and abundance, And it was a world that taught you from a very young age that you should walk into every room confidently and never doubt whether or not you belonged. And the minute I felt that and saw that, I wanted more of it um, and wanted it for me and for others. And so my parents were the first to teach me that parents have the right to choose education options for children and that you don't have to settle for the school down the street if if you don't think it's going to be good enough for your children. And so began my quest to create some of those same opportunities for other people's children and began my teaching career in Santa Monica among some of the best teachers in the country. I started as an educator 25 years ago as a sixth grade English and history teacher in Santa Monica Malibu School District at Lincoln Middle School. And I was a part of an environment where everyone was expected to do and be their best every day but this time I was the teacher and was surrounded by colleagues who really taught me what it meant to be a strong educator, a strong teacher to teach with passion and empathy. And I learned from the best and wanted to take what I learned in Santa Monica to communities where families were looking for and were desperate for higher quality options and places where parents just like my own were looking for something better. And so seven years after teaching, I made my way to Green Dot and haven't left since. I'm going into my 19th year at Green Dot, my seventh year as CEO of Green Dot California. I started as the founding principal of the second school in Green Dot, and we now have 19 middle and high schools across Los Angeles. What does a
0: president and CEO actually do?
1: Honestly, I have the same responsibilities of any superintendent across the country. In fact, Greenette California's size is in the top 7% in terms of size of district across the country. We have a little over 11,000 students and most districts across the country are fairly small. And so, you know, that situates us right towards the top in terms of size. I would say on top of the traditional responsibilities of a superintendent, I also take on added responsibilities that I think are fairly unique to charters. For one I know this is going to be a controversial statement in some ways, but I do believe and have experienced charters as the most accountable entity in the public education system. Charters the only schools in the public education system that have to prove every five years that they've earned the privilege of serving the students they serve. And if they can't prove it, they close. And that's not true of any other traditional public school. So I am accountable to my 12-member board, which includes the two presidents of our two unions. Um, We've done that on purpose to really ensure there's transparency and communication, and that our teachers and classified unions have a seat at the decision-making table. In addition to that, uh, our schools are accountable to the boards of five different authorizers across the city, and all of those five authorizers have their own oversight requirements, including an oversight visit each year, That includes a review of our educational program, our operations, and our financials. And honestly, charter authorizers have the ultimate power over charter schools. They can approve or deny our new schools. They can renew or deny schools that are up for renewal, and they can revoke existing charters. So that extra layer of accountability does require additional work. On top of that, I'll say that we put a lot of effort into grassroots student recruitment, each year to ensure every family in a community has access to the information so that we can honestly say we've provided every opportunity to every family to enroll in our schools. Um, They're free and open to all, and that's often something we have to help people understand because there's lots of myths out there about charters. And then I would say in an environment that is honestly quite hostile towards charters at times, I spend a lot of my time on advocacy to try to help change the narrative but also to help influence policy and legislation that will be better for our mission.
0: Tell us briefly about the shutdown of in-person schooling back in March and the switch to distance learning. Do you think that charters were better prepared for distance learning than perhaps traditional public schools?
1: I think there's a lot of districts that have done really good work um, during the, the shutdown period. Um, March 13th was the day we, we closed our school buildings. I'll remember it forever. <laughs> and just like everybody else, we had to completely reinvent the way teaching and learning comes to life in our organization. And for us, it was important from the get-go to ensure whatever model we built really focused on every child. So you know, not having access to a computer was not going to be a reason for a student not to, to engage. We use four guiding principles to get us through the spring and now through the fall since we've already started uh, for the fall. Those are equity and access, connection and well-being, transparency and communication, and sustainability. Really trying to manage the budget uh, with all the different information that we were getting about funding. I would say in the spring we learned a lot of lessons. There were three key pieces to our approach that I think have really helped us to be successful. One was we took the time to show teachers what virtual learning looks like. To expect teachers to transition very quickly was not going to work. And so we actually spent a week with professional development with teachers virtually to help them navigate systems and understand best practices around virtual learning. Secondly, we then built a whole system aligned around supporting teachers through the spring and now through the fall. And then thirdly, really ensuring we had tight coordination and collaboration across all schools in the organization. So every school was on the same bell schedule. So it was easy for parents to know whether your student is a sixth grader or a 12th grader. This is the schedule, here are the subjects they will be taking. And and it was easy for teachers to navigate as well. So in the spring, we had 72% of our students required a device. So we bought enough devices for every single student who needed one so they could connect to distance learning. Over 1,300 of our students needed um, internet hotspots. And so we provided those internet hotspots so they could connect to the internet. And we were able to partner in the spring with UCLA. A team of researchers actually helped us to study our data and learn from best practices. And so each week we were administering surveys to students and to teachers. And in the spring, 98% of teachers agreed that they felt connected and a sense of community just through the professional development that happened weekly and all the efforts that their administrators made. Over 90% of families agreed that our distance learning model aligned to our mission and that they felt that their school demonstrated a deep sense of care for their children during the spring. And so we're proud of those numbers. We were also able to engage 96% of our students through distance learning we carried that through the summer instead of having summer melt we did the green dot summer climb we offered several different summer programs online students were allowed to keep their chromebooks over the summer so we had summer school for students who needed to recoup credits We had Summer Bridge to transition incoming sixth graders and ninth graders to their new middle or high schools. And then our expanded learning team and our curriculum team created a separate website with daily summer enrichment Monday through Friday. So even if a student wasn't engaged in one of our formal summer programs, they were able to engage through that enrichment program. School started a week and a half ago, not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. And so far we have had 91% of our students accessing assignments on Google Classroom and 86% attendance. So we're striving for 95%, which is our typical percentage. So a strong start in the first week. And I I would just add a couple of other things. We have the 240 minimum minutes that are required by the state are all live instruction for us. So students have 240 minutes minimum of live instruction with a teacher engaging with voice and camera on teaching lessons live.
0: And are your teachers delivering their lessons from your schools or their homes, or do they have a choice?
1: They have a choice. And so we wanted to be mindful. We have quite a few teachers who are parents and would not have options for childcare if we asked them to come and teach at the school building. So our school buildings are open for teachers who would like to teach in their classroom but they can also teach from home. Um, The background that you see here, green dot background in Zoom, we've created for all of our teachers. So there is that element of privacy and you can't see what's happening behind them. And same for our students. So we've created one of these Zoom backgrounds for each one of our schools with their logos so that everybody can engage fully and not be distracted.
0: Christina, you've played a state leadership role whenever the issue of changing the existing charter school law comes up. You and I served on a task force with Superintendent Torlakson, and this past year you were on a task force convened by Superintendent Tony Thurman at the request of Governor Newsom. That work resulted in AB 1505, signed into law by Governor Newsom, now being implemented in districts across the state. So tell our listeners what those basic changes are, and how do you see implementation going in LA Unified, a school district that has more charter schools than any other school district in the nation?
1: I think we were on two task forces together, Carl, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Um, but you know, this, this last task force, I was really honored to work alongside a group of individuals. I think there were 11 of us total across the state and everybody came with a willingness to listen and to collaborate and to really have their minds changed about, you know, what's happening in other people's worlds in the education space. And so people spent at least one day a week for over four months hopping on planes, coming to Sacramento, convening and and having really tough conversations. It wasn't always easy, but I fundamentally believe everybody at that table had the best interests of, of children at heart. So it was an honor and a privilege to be a part of that. AB 1505 for me, I think solidifies that charter schools do have a place in the public education system in California. It also ensures that charters continue to be held accountable and also provides a a path for new schools to open and for existing schools to be renewed or or denied. And the good news is it's creating a sense of consistency across the state. Used to be up to individual authorizers, really to develop their own renewal criteria. And maybe 1505 is creating a good deal of consistency, and I hope will serve to kind of squash the us versus them dynamics that are out there, charter versus traditional public schools. My understanding is there's still some, some further guidance that's gonna come from the state to clarify some of the, the pieces in the legislation that are still a little bit nebulous, but for the most part, it's creating a strong foundation for consistency. Related to LAUSD, we have a longstanding history of partnering with LAUSD, and so I anticipate that our shared commitment to provide historically underserved families with access to high-quality schools uh, will remain the focus of any future policy changes related to 1505 or anything else. I will applaud the LUSD's addition of the core student growth percentiles to the criteria for renewal. They did that um, last week. I believe it was in addition to the academic outcomes on the California dashboard. I believe that a student growth measure is extremely important when it comes to measuring the academic value a school adds to to the students furthest away from opportunity. So without that growth, you really lose a whole side of the picture of outcomes at a school. So I'm I'm really proud and excited that they've added that element in LUSD. I'll honestly say I'm a little concerned by some of the pieces that've been added that are not focused on student outcomes. Things like outstanding district invoices being considered as a reason to deny a renewal. Enrollment trends and demographics also being considered in renewal. You know, I am concerned about those elements, however hopeful about the addition of the core student growth percentiles because it really tells me they are focused on student outcomes ultimately uh, when it comes to renewals of, of existing schools.
0: And finally, Christina, how has leading under these extraordinary circumstances changed you As a leader,
1: I believe I'm forever changed as an educator and a person uh, as a result of the last six months. I've never felt more humbled, more challenged or more hopeful in my 25 years of education, as I have in the last five to six months. I actually just read an article that was titled Why the Worst Job in Education Right Now is the Superintendents. Because <laughs> the the issues we're facing are so vast and beyond the scope of anything we've ever had to deal with in such a short period of time. But I think perhaps the most distressing of all the challenges is the fact that in the last five months The persistent inequities and injustices that have plagued our country for centuries have been laid bare. The pandemic has exposed for all to witness the digital divide, the resource divide, the opportunity divide, and the reckoning with race that our country is grappling with right now is inextricably tied to the digital resource and opportunity divides that exist within the public education system. I think to further emphasize that, there was a study that just came out that struck me that estimates. That students living in low-income communities may have lost in excess of one year's worth of academic growth just in the last five months. That is life-changing. Those are life-changing stats that really give me a more of a sense of urgency, I think bring the mission of my organization into greater focus. And so I really do believe in this moment, it's important for all of us to leverage privilege and our power to protect the potential of the students in the public education system.
0: And if you're like me and you're actually going to put in 50 years at this, you've got another 25 to go. So what's next for you?
1: That's my hope. I got to steal some of that energy and passion from you, Carl. I've never been one of those people that has planned 10 to 15 years ahead for my career. I've always just put my head down and have done the work and have been fortunate to experience the opportunities that I have. And so I'm just going to work. I'm going to grind. Uh, I'm going to use my passion to, to really push outcomes for students forward and do everything I can to contribute.
0: Thank you so much for coming on and visiting with us today. Much appreciated.
1: Of course. Thank you. I appreciate you. Take care of yourself.
0: That was Christina De Jesus, president and CEO of Green Dot Public Schools, California. She's been working hard to lead and develop successful charter schools in Los Angeles for almost 20 years. Let's leave this episode with a musical piece from Elaine Leroy Locke College Preparatory Academy's Jazz Ensemble, performing at Green Dot's annual Teacher Awards event. This has been Schools on the Front Lines, brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our opening theme is by Utah. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Carl Cohn.